What a day. What a life. Hey, Robin. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm tired, and actually this, I'm going to be real, this episode made me ill. Yeah, it yeah. was. Like, I don't know if I can continue with The Bachelor. Like, I, it, there was. I mean, I'm going to watch yeah, it again, of, obviously. Of course, but of I course. Just, it was I a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, um, we'll get into it. Yeah, and what's better than to deal with a heavy episode of The Bachelor than... Karl Marx. Karl <laughs> Sweet, sweet Karl Marx. Das Kapital. Das Kapital. We're talking about Marxism, and I guess like we'll err on the side of cultural Marxism, but should we go over some terms that we might want to know? Yeah, so Marxism, before I was in grad school, like I heard the term thrown around a lot, and I was like, I don't... Like, I was like, cool, yeah, you know, it means you're liberal or something. So we're just going to go over, we're going to go, like, real, real base level of some terms. And some of it seems obvious for those of you living in a capitalist society. Like, it's it's kind of like what's obvious, but... He was the OG. Yeah, he was the one that actually put it in context. Yeah. Again, we're not experts. We're, yeah, we're doing our best. We're junior scholars. (laughs) Working through... Marxism I think is especially like I guess if you're interested in like like gender too like Marxism has a lot like if you can fight through like this like terminology and this really like I don't know old German like there's some really cool social analysis tools in there that I think are very helpful. And Marxism also is the basis of the academic study of popular culture especially um, thinking about uh, like Raymond Williams, Ray Brown, um, all of this, uh, what's his name? Stuart Hall. Love, love him. Really basis in Marxism. I'm forgetting their names all of a sudden. And a lot of current feminism is based on um, kind of Marxist principles. So why don't we just stop talking about Marx? like what okay. Marxism is? So, Let's just talk about what it is. Okay. I guess like, I don't know, I could start with this quote and then we could talk about some of the terms. Sure. So this is from Peter Hitchcock. Um, Hitch. <laughs> So we can define Marxism as reading, quote, political economy as a lived relation in which all that makes the social is suffused with determinate conditions that if understood as well as felt, we could do well to transform, end quote. Yes. So Marx identified capitalism because really his idea was that it's it needs to be overthrown. So when someone says there's a, they're a Marxist, they, they're kind of implying that they're like revolutionary. It doesn't automatically jump to socialism like you could be a marxist but not necessarily be like a hardcore socialist and that's like the i think split like within the academy certainly Mm -hmm. between looking at marxism like marxist theory or marxist praxis you know if we're talking about like political organizing or like leading to a socialist revolution we're talking about marxist praxis but in the academy we're focusing on marxist analysis and marxist theory which could lead to like praxis and practical action but mm-hmm. it's defined in like relating these terms and relationships so in a nutshell yeah you're in a nutshell there's a ruling class and there's a working class and the ruling class owns the means of production so they have all the money they have the power right that's that's real 101 working class so the the working class feels alienated from their labor it's not they're not making something like they're not homesteading. They're not, you know, doing doing their own crops. I don't know, growing, yeah. doing their crops, <laughs> growing their crops. They're doing something maybe in a factory or mm-hmm. they're doing something where they don't really see the results of their labor, both physically and non-physically. So they're very alienated because the ruling class, they want to make the most money with the least amount of work. They want to maximize their profit. It just creates this very big class um, difference. And I think aside from that, it's kind of like a snowball. Like once Mm -hmm. a capitalist system starts, it just keeps growing and growing on itself where it's it feels almost impossible to unravel. Yeah. Which is why it can be kind of depressing. Um, You know, I have I thought am I against capitalism? I don't know if I can say that because I benefit I personally benefit a lot of from mm-hmm. it mo- some explicitly. Capitalism is so surrounding us that I feel like I wouldn't even I wouldn't be me if I didn't grow up in a capitalist society. Like it's so embedded in mm-hmm. everything I do. The fact that we're in grad school is part of capitalism. I mean, I think we're we're not here because we're expecting to get 
like million dollar jobs right but it's part you know higher ed is part of a system people go to college and go to grad school to get a better job to be paid more to get more money to purchase things and experiencing things and thus the cycle repeats itself and I think this is related to like when we're talking I think Marxism makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about like the factory or like you know those conditions or like what's the difference between farming and creating like a crop and like a muffin like that you can see the (laughs) development of your labor versus putting like screws on things um and that now we've moved into like a post-industrial capitalist society where we're even further alienated from the products of our labor because our those products aren't even physically tangible anymore. And I guess I want to note like the terms use value and exchange value, which seem really simple but like confused me. When we're thinking about products and being like connected to your work and gaining a sense of like fulfillment from like your labor, um, that's when you see like, oh, I built a chair and this chair has a use value because people sit in it and they gain enjoyment from sitting in Mm -hmm. this chair. And so I feel a connection to the product of my labor. But in a capitalist society, we engage in the fetishization of objects and turn them into commodities because a chair has to be able to be exchanged for a muffin and you can't do like one chair equals one muffin. So we have to create money. So we have to um, fetishize these commodities um, and turn them into like these different values. So I think that that's also part of the estrangement and alienation. So now like we're in grad school, if we want to like buy an article on JSTOR, like what are we even buying? Like it's unclear and then it's unclear who, who, what is the product of labor and who is producing that product? Yeah. Are we buying the actual knowledge or are we buying the words on a paper? Or are we buying the labor? Yeah. Um, just going back to use value and exchange value, I usually see it as, so for instance, you're, you're, well, we're both wearing really cute outfits today. You're wearing a really cute shirt. Yeah. TJ Maxx. Okay. TJ Maxx. Um, mine's from H&M. Wow. Ooh. We're really in the capitalist machine. So a shirt a shirt covers your body it's cold you need something um also you can't go around topless you know so a shirt really just needs to be warm material that covers your body so that is a use value but exchange value is how much are you willing to pay for a shirt that looks nice for a shirt that is um (laughs) i was just trying to think of a luxury brand and i thought j crew (laughs) But I mean, we can go luxury up, you know what for I mean? us. <laughs> luxury for us, J. Crew. I mean, you can go up the line in luxury, or you know, you uh, T. J. Maxx. It's all about like the pride of the good find that like right. you found this shirt for a good sale. Um, I know I've struggled with consumerism as um, activity. Like if I'm really of depressed, course. I'll like wander around TJ Maxx and it's just like this weird relaxing. And like I have had a problem with like having a rush of like the purchase of things. It also relates to aspirational uh, shopping. We buy things because it makes us think like there's a displacement. We think that it's going to bring us happiness or a lifestyle. And that's why we buy expensive cars. That's why we get Beats by Dre. I don't know what that came from. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, it's, it's AirPods It's right AirPods now. right now. I'm That's old. what it is. Okay. So, I mean, AirPods, like, I guess the use value is there, but it's kind of like Apple products are supremely a Coveted, good example yeah. of use value, exchange value, because they could be like, guess what? We have a new AirPod and there's a molecule that's different and everybody lines up (laughs) yeah so it turns into that and then it also turns into um marx also talked about object fetishism um and fetishism in the real base sense not sexually that we really just place all this value um and it becomes beyond the actual object that we think about it if you think about it everything that happens in kind of the i guess i mean we're talking from an american perspective Especially now bringing it to The Bachelor, things like the if you think about the wedding industry, the, right. the wedding industrial complex, and about the commodification of what is heterosexual dating look like. It's all really based on this capitalist idea about wanting things. We all live beyond our means, not because we're selfish or materialistic. It's just because that is what we have been socialized in a capitalist economy. Yeah, and I think that's sort of, like, Marxism is looking at these relations of, like, heterosexual dating, for example, like, through the lens of historical materialism. So we're Mm -hmm. really looking at, like, what are the material, 
like material structures that underlie these processes Mm -hmm. um and that what comes from that kind of like material reality those like material conditions of production um our ideologies and so we have these ideas we have an idea that shopping is going to make us feel better we have an idea that we should get married before we're 30 and so that all of these ideologies that are part of a superstructure um kind of restructured reproduce capitalism so capitalism is related to both like the material conditions of production but also these intangible essences of um marxism says for example like racism or sexism is ultimately like related back to the base that is like the conditions of material production yeah so you're talking about base and superstructure so base are is the actual logistics of capitalism like the factories the workers the product the superstructure is the culture that arises from that and i think it's a real easy example, but I think we're in like influencer culture is Certainly. a real super structure that comes from, you know, how we're really blurring. People are them selling themselves as product and they're really the breakdown between public and private is really breaking down, which if you get really, if you start thinking about that, it's, it's pretty terrifying. I don't know. From like the hardcore Marxism, like that we sketched out or like the tenets of Marxism, then... Mm-hmm. Um, like moving into like okay we're cultural theorists or like mm-hmm. we're cultural scholars then like what does Marxism allow us to do for me I find it really interesting um, because we can look at cultural production in like a hard material sense like mm-hmm. who owns these corporations that you know produce the bachelor like mm-hmm. who owns Instagram like what are the relations of production there and so how can we connect those like material realities of capital and wealth to um to like social life and cultural mm-hmm. expression. Mm-hmm. So that's where I find um, Marxism to be, to like have the payoff there for me as someone that's interested in like cultural expression and social change. And I um, coming from, I have a degree in popular culture, thinking about popular culture is a result of capitalism, but it's also can be a site of resistance. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So moving into, so in the 1940s, there was a group of European scholars who escaped uh, World War II, Germany and other European countries to start what they call the Frankfurt School. And they were Marxists that looked at, instead of an economic uh, lens, they were looking at a cultural lens. (laughs) <laughs> Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno are some mm-hmm. of the most well-known. Yeah. And they wrote um, the, uh, uh, sort of a, almost like a manifesto. Like yeah, the, it was like called the, the seminal text. It was the seminal text of the culture industry. What is the full name? Enlightenment is Mass Deception, Thanks. I think. Yeah. It's Friday, and we've just had a real rough week of we really canceled have. classes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think they, like Horkheimer and Adorno, like coming from like fascist Germany and like fascist Europe, we're very interested to see how these how these countries could mobilize like mass popular culture objects and utilize like films, advertisements, propaganda. posters, yeah, propaganda in order to promote a certain type of ideology. And so they uh, applied their kind of personal experience and seeing that to examine Hollywood as an industry that promotes this false consciousness and promotes this superstructure of capitalistic ideology. So they were very pessimistic about popular culture. Now, at the time, popular in the 1940s, it was a lot of popular music, um, television, and like visual. It, well, films were obviously not as abundant as they were, but they're looking at film, radio, a lot. They really had a lot of thoughts about music. They felt that entertainment and low art um, were just copy just these um, mindless copies of another that there was the illusion of difference that all popular songs were really the same but they're changed ever so slightly to make them feel personalized they also thought that um, that movies and music it was it turned people into idiots like they actually thought it made people stupider right Um, they thought that it was distracting people from there because people are alienated they used popular culture as um, a way to escape the alienation, as we do today, and they thought that that stopped them from taking any real action, that it was kind of like the Soma from Brave New World. Yeah. They say that, um, quote, amusement under late capitalism is the prolongation of... Pro- 
that right of yeah. work um and i think that is true that they're speaking like very like very clearly that oh if you're going to like these hollywood movie houses in the 1940s you're i don't know what the actresses are actor i don't know rita hayworth <laughs> rita hayworth sure like you're watching her you're becoming a nerd to the Casablanca. conditions yeah <laughs> classic but that you're not you know, becoming consciousness of your own alienation, your own repression, and going to politically organize, like, with your friends in the streets that you're consuming these mass cultural objects and they're um, promoting this false consciousness of you. I think that today this is a little – that's proven less true because of, I think, maybe, like, the subversive or revolutionary potentials of cultural – certain, like, cultural objects. But at the time, I think that was – pretty accurate so this is a very important text in like the academic study of popular culture and it's not that we all disagree with it there has been a lot of work since then kind of building on this and I think for me what is really missing with this if you were to apply it today is that they're coming from a very white privileged male um, perspective and also assuming that all culture is is the same I mean they say it but if you think about through the 50s and 60s Popular culture and 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 what is considered lowbrow culture is a site of a lot of resistance. If you think, I mean, they would say that sitcoms are part of this just mindless entertainment, but sitcoms are some of the areas where you saw representation of people of color on TV. Um, if we fast forward to you know reality t- television, that's also something that they would consider part of the culture industry. As we've talked about, it's also a space where people of color, queer people are actually have more representation or actually, you know, living, you know, we're seeing them in their lives more than other entertainment. So for me, that's what it misses. It misses that point. And also we have just had, you know, back then there was the Hollywood system and like four channels. And I think, you know, as the rise of independent cinema and streaming, I think that Um, We've had more sort of um, driven things that, you know, talk about lives that are different and offer some resistance. I mean, I think about filmmakers like Spike Lee or, um, you know, Orange is the New Black. Those are I mean, those are very different things, but for reasons that they have like broad attention, good and bad. I mean, they're not above any critique. They're not perfect. But I actually think I don't know, I guess um, where I feel like with all this content and all the streaming content and all the podcasts and all the albums, I think that we're there is a danger of distraction as well. Yeah. Because th- there's just too much that we kind of try to numb ourselves by just streaming whatever. I think what is like uh, like the other side of that, I see that like activists and other like scholars academics just like marginalized peoples are like utilizing these these industries um or like these platforms which is like a new sort of like technological phenomenon like Mm -hmm. twitter facebook instagram etc and those are like a social media industry and those are being used in ways that like they were not intended you know for like hashtag me too arab spring like oh yeah you know looking at the way in which um um, cultural platforms or like cultural products become um, transgressive, like sites for transgression, I think is really fascinating. And I don't think that they obviously could have foreseen this, mm-hmm. but there is that revolutionary potential to use cultural platforms as a site of, of political resistance. Um, but yeah, yeah so other people have written stuff. So I don't think, yeah. I mean, if, if some people might take, the, the the culture industry like they might take it at face value but it's it's kind of known that it, it it's considered for its context and it provides a base mm-hmm. of thinking about culture and the way we think about culture it's not necessarily taken as gospel now in the academic field something else I want to mention is that um, in recent kind of political climate, the term cultural Marxism mm. is being used a lot. Yes. And it's, I mean, if you want to, it's being used falsely. It's saying that it's basically an anti-identity politi- politics, anti-social justice, anti-critical studies, just saying that the left use cultural Marxist tactics. And it's, it's so that comes up a lot. So if somebody who uses that word, I would just say, ask them what they mean and see if they really know what it means. Right. And maybe they, they do. Probably have not read Das Kapital. Yeah, cultural Marxism, like it, it does kind of 
if if you're going to put those two words together, I would think of the culture industry, but that's not what people use it for. Right. In kind of the vernacular of it. Yeah. And I think that especially like for looking at reality television, like as a cultural text, like applying like a cultural Marxist lens is very helpful because, you know, these relations of the the where's capital's interest in the production of this yeah. text like are very important to look at and that I mean I feel like I do sometimes stray too far into focusing on aesthetics of representation and mm -hmm. cultural Marxism can help you I don't know provide a more like structural grounding to your critique so yeah but it's being weaponized now yeah definitely yeah for, for that. me that's where yeah. I see it's I'm not saying you were weaponizing it, but like the term is being, you know, the, I told, yeah. the term is being taken out of context. All right. Okay. Marxism. Yeah, that's it. So you don't have to read anything else. Um, and I just want to add like the, this is usually the first thing you read in a cultural studies class and yeah. it's a nightmare. It's quite long. It's but, quite um, long and it's translated from German and don't get frustrated because um, there's yeah. actually so many texts that will help you understand it. Like, the way that I came to understand it was through secondary texts. Yeah. Okay. So talk. Oh, this episode. Yeah. I'm exhausted already. Where did you see, where's your cultural Marxist critique of? Well, my Marxist critique yeah. is one is we can like step back and be like the show is a product. Yeah. The show is part of a, of a conglomerate, of a series, of a franchise that has become sort of bigger than the show. So um, if we want to talk about, you know, something seeming different every time, but it's really the same. I mean, this is every every season is the same. Yeah. And sort of that, you know, and, and I have said, like, I watch reality show for the experience to sort of tune out. Um, and this show used to help me tune out, but it actually makes me more angry <laughs> than ever. So it's having the opposite effect. So, okay, so there's that. There's the commodification of love and marriage and dating and that it's based on not only this heterosexist place, but this a lot about commodities and experiences and what you're supposed to be feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's all part of capitalism. Then thirdly, kind of the things that they do on the show are commodifying experiences. Oh, just to jump back, mm -hmm. um, objects aren't the only thing that are fe that is fetishized. You can have experience like For sure. this, like the new food culture and yeah. foodies and eating out and having these experiences and traveling um, and all these, there was a really good New York Times article about these pop-up museums that are purely there for like Instagram feeds. Yeah. So experience can be modified. So yeah, they go to Singapore, the date that Kaylin went on where she just got to try on clothes and purchase things, um, was a very, very much the idea of like what, what women want are to go women be shopping and the fact that. It wasn't about spending time with Colton. It's that he gave her all these things, a.k.a. the producers paid for it. Yeah. I think that, like, this relates back to sort of, like, your first point of, like, the show as, like, a product that, like, within just, like, the setup of that date and, like, every single time that we watch the show, like, The Bachelor is connected to ABC. It's connected to a corporation, but it's it, this is also owned by Disney, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, like all of these different sort of like capital interests in getting you to feel like a princess like Kaylin's date like getting to buy all these dresses is that there's these overlapping like cultural scripts and ideologies that seek out like that push us to like pursue our relationship within these ethics of consumerism so just watching The Bachelor like you can't escape those other lenses or those other like um frames of consumption i guess mm -hmm. and the synergy between the the uh because that's why a lot of the bachelor people are on dancing with the stars because it's the same network and yeah they own it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm, i else? mean the women as objects i mean colton is shopping for a wife yeah you know what i mean yeah. these women are objects that are going to that are aspirational to him you know and i don't think it's i don't think it's i mean i sound cynical to say that when you look for a partner and you marry somebody that they're like an object to you, but it's sort of the way that we have fantasized relationships and like you, this is how you will be happy and this is your happily ever after. And, you know, being with somebody um, is kind of that ultimate aspiration. And even like, like a sexual encounter, like virginity is also like objectified and commodified that Colton is being sold and packaged as the mm -hmm. virgin bachelor, like in these, um, in these posters and these like 
show like media materials and so even what we would think is perhaps like a personal or intimate or like a private aspect of like the self Mm -hmm. is is redeployed in order to get abc more viewers Mm -hmm. and i think that the women like women's bodies are a site of capitalism makeup industry the beauty industry kind of their all the outfits they have to bring and all the ways that they have to present themselves I mean women are sold that image and it's a and now the wellness industry is just blowing up and face masks masks and skincare routines I mean it's all being sold to you as a product and I think like going off of that what's really interesting is seeing how the body becomes like not just an object but also a symbol or like a site of of class or of oh, like yeah. class division yeah, yeah, yeah. that you that these women you know of course we have you know we have like a limited amount of like sort of racial diversity on the bachelor but all of these women they're very slim they're very young they you know fall within these like sort of like heteronormative white supremacist beauty standards mm-hmm. But this is also related to, like, the replication of women as as sex objects, that women are, we all have long hair, we're supposed to look a certain way in order to be consumed by a man. Mm -hmm. And the women of color, um, and you can, you might disagree, I think that it's either the women they pick or the women feel obligated to conform to a white beauty standard, um, as far as, like, I don't think anybody has natural hair, Mm -hmm. which is... I mean, which is obviously a choice for these women. It's not a bad thing. But where where does this choice come from? Right. You know, what capitalist, how has capitalism contributed to kind of this idea of the product they have to make themselves? And I would highly recommend reading Susan Bordeaux, who wrote um, one of the best books about um, eating disorders in Western civilization. Although there are definitely biological and psychological components to eating disorders, that it's it's an epidemic that is seen in countries with abundance, so usually capitalist societies. So I did, I sounded like I just made the jump from these women to eating disorders, but if but she talks a lot about how the body is made into an object and commodified, and that contributes to it like even going off of that too. What's really interesting to me, like in watching The Bachelor, and then in watching their like vacation to Singapore is seeing how like lines are blurred like between like on this show women's bodies become part of this consumptive economy they're put they're put to work in some ways and no Mm -hmm. they're not getting a wage but they're getting exposure and so like I think in this kind of like post-industrialist economy what is labor and what is what we would say maybe like pleasure, private, like dating, finding like a spouse is the line is blurred between that. And I think it's, you know, it's problematic. Like these women don't get paid or compensated for their, um, for missing work and Colton does get paid. So I think there's a lot of, I don't know, it's, it's hard to identify exploitation. I think definitely like within this period of mm-hmm. this sort of post-industrialist experiential economy. Yeah. And women are, sold this idea that if you want to date okay well are you taking care of yourself are you doing makeup are you working out are you making yourself better by using all these commodities and that you have to constantly and also oh just jumping in all the women um you know the signifiers of class they have straight teeth they have clear skin um these are all what we come to signify as class they all have they have to bring their own outfits they have to bring like 40. I mean, if you expect to win, you're going to have to bring like 40 different sequin dresses. Yeah. There was some, I forget where it was. It was like uh, not an academic article, but it was like a. It was like a re- <laughs> refinery. Yeah. It was yeah. like a refinery 29 or something Um, that I think they don't. Some contest- contestants were talking about it and like yeah. they don't pay. Um, like the producers or like the show will only pay for your dress if you're like the, the second two or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They'll so, style you. Yeah. Like so. Some women spent like literally thousands of dollars um, to get a wardrobe and like get sent home like the first or second night. Did want to note, I guess, like more like about their group date mm. in Singapore. <laughs> There's a lot going on, but like, why were they so excited to go? Like, no, nothing against Singapore, but they said we're going to Singapore, and they all screamed like did. it was their life's dream to go. I mean, we know that was also set up by the producers, right. but like, what? 
Well, I was, Singapore probably paid for it. Singapore, like Singapore tourism. Yeah, definitely. When I don't know, even like just like going around like the marketplace and like trying these foods, going to like the leech therapy place. Like it was so it's always so fascinating to me how artificial these encounters are, because, of course, like they're produced and like the places they go like are specifically picked. But you just I don't know, like on your TV, you can see how tourism is such I don't know, such late stage capitalism, the consumption and enjoyment of these exotic, you know, spaces, oh, yeah. cuisines and cultures. And it's just thrown into really sharp relief how this is it's all curated. The experience is a commodity. Right. Yeah. To experience Singapore, to mm-hmm. have Eastern food. I'm sorry, Eastern medicine is weird. They use leeches. Right. And the food thing was not cute. It wasn't funny. It's it was very it's racist. It was racist. And yeah. just this like, oh my God, they eat bullfrog. Uh, yeah, okay. Do you know like what's in a hot dog? Yeah. Like, also the food looked delicious. It did look really good. Like they were being adventurous was performative for Colton. Like mm-hmm. Hannah felt, I mean, we'll get into her, that she felt like she had, I forgot what she was eating. She, she ate like an eye. She ate an eye and she had to do it because she wanted to be fun for Colton. And then yeah. that other woman puking in the dumpster, like calm, calm it down. Calm on Yeka, yeah. Calm down. Yeah. That was, I don't know. I'm always like, and I guess we're, we're not, we'll talk about like yeah, post-colonial theory that. later, yeah. but like I I was surprised that they went international this week because I had, you know. Like, it wasn't on our syllabus. It wasn't on our syllabus, <laughs> and so I feel unprepared, but I get we can talk more about that later. But. And just where they go in Singapore, like it's just, it looked like the Times Square of Singapore, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it all looked gorgeous, but it was like. In a touristy area. Now, there's actually, I didn't know this um, until I started grad school. I took a whole course on cultural tourism, and it's fascinating. Do we want to move into, like, our general, yeah, like, our, because there was, there was a lot in this episode. There's so a lot. Like, and moving we'll come, away from. We'll jump back. I mean, I have a lot yeah. of things to say. Should we, do, let's talk about Kaylin and her story. Yeah. I was surprised that they gave her that edit. Like, they just let her talk. It wasn't a quick edit, which I think really was yeah. a good service. Definitely. To be done. I thought it was, uh, yeah, I was surprised that they, I don't know, the edit was so long and that they, I don't know, they centralized it in a way that didn't seem gratuitous. Yeah. And I don't, gave her the space to make that admission. Yeah. And I don't know, The Bachelor, it, it really, it drives home like how, I don't know, the the artificial and the fake and the sort of like fake rivalries between Courtney yeah. and Demi and then to have such like a central like experience of sexual violence which you know just like within our whole cultural yeah. context it was it was jarring but I think that it like in a good way I don't yeah. know if that makes sense yeah the way that the edit was um it was almost so if the camera is the gaze if we're gazing through yeah. the camera usually you have a lot of jump cuts between people the fact that the camera stayed on her was almost like the audience was listening like we weren't right. distracted like Colton you know listened and you know I was saying to somebody like I think Colton had a good reaction I think he yeah reacted in a way that I think he really is a sweet person a little boring I think he is really sweet and actually just to mention the ex-girlfriend he was talking about was probably Allie, Allie Raisman yeah. yeah from the U.S. gymnastics team so then also like we're giving him credit for being like the bare minimum of a of, decent human of being like I yeah, like you're, you. yeah, yeah. So and he listened, and he knew to shut up, or somebody told him like just let her talk. Yeah. How do you feel about revealing something like that on a show that's such a like kind of a fake? Yeah. Like, how do you do? You think that something like this belongs on The Bachelor? I think I was surprised that ABC, I guess, decided to show it. But I also, I don't. I read some article that Kaylin had been. This is something that she has spoken about in her yeah. pageant career. So this was wow. something yeah. that isn't. Um, it wasn't an admission and a discussion of her experience that was like unique to The Bachelor. But this was something that she had. I like unless I'm getting this totally wrong. Talked about. Um, no, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So I think that. If they hadn't decided to show it, I think this may have been like a calculation that it could have been. It didn't feel calculated. Yeah. It didn't feel calculated. I don't think Kaylin is using it. Oh, no. I mean, just like, I mean, like calculated on the part of like ABC, the corporation to either show it or not show it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's such a pro like you to talk about this problem. You got to hit it on every level. You got to talk about it academically. You got to talk about it. 
in lowbrow culture. You're going to talk about it in popular culture. So I thought that was good. And I think the way and I the way she told it, it sounded like she had told it before. Not in a bad way. I'm not saying she's rehearsed, but it like it was upsetting for her. But she it seemed like she had dealt with it in a way that she was able to like structure her thoughts around it. Obviously, she's it's something she deals with. How do you then feel, I guess, like like having that being like sort of like the central part of the episode and then Kaylin and the Hannah drama? than going off of that because I think for me that was the most like like we're getting into like a real sort of like a real social and political issue and then to be placed back within the context of this like faux interpersonal conflict or maybe I mean they kind of resolved it like the and again you never know what's editing I mean the way the editors wanted to think is that now that Kaylin had admitted this it made her think like well you know what I mean like life is short I want to yeah. You know, I want to support women. I'm also, I also get a little twitchy with the blanket statement that, like, women should support women. Like, obviously. Right. Obviously. But that's not, like, a like a blanket statement. Like, women still need to be criticized. We know women still perpetuate white supremacy. White supremacy. Women still perpetuate patriarchy. In this case, like, yeah, cool. It, they're both really awkward. I think they're both awkward and something happened and they don't like we're not nobody knows how to have like real life conversations anymore and Mm -hmm. I think it was like it was almost like the equivalent of like an RA sitting down between a roommate mediation be like talk to each other so cool they like I'm always all about people like becoming friends again (laughs) yeah so oh I want to mention that there there was this now as much as I love RuPaul's Drag Race another reality show Last season, they really did a contestant bad. Blair St. Clair was one of the contestants, and she admitted to she came out as a survivor of rape. And they really, I don't know, I just feel like they really used the story as like just a plot device too much because as soon as she admitted it, then she got sent home. Wow. Like, not that she should have been kept in the competition because of that, but it was a real like wait, we got to make you care about her before we send her home. And I just, even though presumably she did agree to say that on the show, it just was like, it was just a real weird thing. So there is a way that this can be used yeah, kind of badly. Well, and I think The Bachelor obviously doesn't have, like, The Bachelor in Paradise, those allegations of sexual I, conduct, like with Corinne, like The, the Bachelor. We just dropped that. Like, we just stopped yeah, talking about it. Yeah, it's just very... I, like the show obviously I'm I'm glad I think like overall like I don't know like humanity became better because The Bachelor decided to allow Caitlin the space to make her yeah. admission and talk about her experience as a survivor and give her the edit that she did but I I think that we still need to be very critical of of ABC and The Bachelor mm-hmm. franchise and the way that they do manipulate and instrumentalize traumas specifically like the trauma of women in order to make money and advance a narrative so I yeah think I, agree. I some one of my research areas using trauma in entertainment and popular culture so I think it's really interesting and it, I wouldn't say that you should never do it I think there is a time and place for it and I think if you need one to normalize I'm not talking about normalizing sexual assault but normalizing being open about it and saying it and saying that it's wrong and expressing like your personal feelings about it only if you want to like doesn't mean every survivor has to I was oh I I think we also can't ignore that a rape culture is perpetuated by capitalism as women are commodified as this capitalist culture still advises boys to be aggressive still advises about um, you know masculinity means having a lot of sex Mm -hmm. um, shaming women uh, you know, it's all part of it. So if we just want to bring in Marxism and capitalism, I mean, it's all part of the machine. Well, what, I, what, what are your other feelings on this? Episode? I okay. So my big thing that really just pissed me off, and it's a personal thing, so it like gets under my skin. So Hannah B was nervous because things were awkward with Colton because she admitted. She was kind of talking shit about Kaylin and Colton wasn't into that and she was upset about their relationship. So she was very much like, I have to make him like me again. I have to get on good terms. So she was all angsty about it during that group date, which is just like, that's a nightmare for me to just be in that situation and just like fighting for attention. 
And then her having to like put on that act and like her smile, you know what they say, like you can tell if a person is really smiling if it's in the eyes, like her Mm -hmm. smile rarely reaches her eyes, which is kind of creepy. So then she sits with him and she's saying, you know, the usual stuff like I had so much fun today. I feel like we really connected, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, Caitlin and I put that behind us and I don't want to talk about it anymore. And then he said, um, the best part was like, I finally got my Hannah back. Mm-hmm. And OK, let's break that down. Yeah. What he meant was he got the Hannah back that's not emotional and the one that's not thinking about something else and not being annoying and not just focusing all her attention on him which just like is such a like trigger point for me she's only desirable if she's not trouble if she's not difficult mm-hmm. now you could call the thing with her and Kaylin caddy but it's a real like it's a female friendship it's a relational thing that was really upsetting her and yeah. i think that's fair like when you you know fall out with a friend it's very upsetting so to dismiss that as something he didn't want to deal with or not uh, the real part of her is just so insulting and just perpetuates this idea of like women shouldn't be difficult and if you are a difficult woman you're not going to be desirable to a man so it just it just created this whole thing for me and I mean I've been told that I'm too emotional and too mentally tiring so it was a real kind of just like trigger for me about that because I think about that a lot and the fact that women aren't who have the bare minimum of emotions are too emotional like is being upset over a friend that's mad of you being too emotional no that's she is the exact amount right of emotional for that I mean there is something I guess about being too emotional but the fact that being emotional in general is looked down upon was just was just a real real bummer for me on this show and in life yeah it's not good. But. And then Tasha's like that bungee jump date, which is a real basic, come on, that's basic. Performance of happiness and f- being a fun girl was Carefree. painful, yeah. was so painful. And it's like that thing scared the shit. Oh my God. If I went on a date and someone's like, let's bungee I off this, not. I'd be like, bye. Yeah. And just her, you know, she's like, well, I have to do it. And just being scared. And then. Like, her being scared to tell Colton that she was divorced. Like, also no biggie. Yeah. And just scared of his reaction and looking for his approval. And, you know, him again being like, and that smile, the smile you have. I'm like, her smile is performative. Her smile is hiding her hurt. And she's telling you that. Mm -hmm. But he's like, I just, your smile is so sexy. Yikes. Because what's sexy to him is somebody not being difficult. Difficult and being. Yeah accommodating um just i'm just like shooketh i guess still i don't really know if this relates to anything uh-huh. um, any theoretical foundation but demi calling courtney the cancer of the house <laughs> <laughs> i was like this is just bonkers i mean um, demi's I'm, bad she's very entertaining she knows what she's doing i'll say that for her definitely she's just the show, I think, like that. I don't. There was so much going on there, and then like that was just like she was gaslighting Courtney. Yeah, she was being really manipulative. Should I say that Demi is like the best player of the game in a long time? Like, I would say she's lawful evil. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely. She knows what she's doing, and then she pulled the whole like, well, I'm gonna now reveal my emotional truth about her mother. You yeah, know? and use that and give that to Colton but then take it back and be Mm -hmm. like the sexy Demi yeah and just things she does like after she got the rose she goes oh my heart which was like a genius thing to say yeah Demi is thing to say I kind of want to learn from her she has an Instagram it's open okay um she looks like a little fawn she's so tiny and blonde I felt that I did feel bad for Courtney but I was also like Courtney stop taking the bait like you are taking this bait yeah you were letting it get to your head yeah um Demi is really good you kind of can't beat Demi at this game so just ignore her just True. walk away True. there's no beating her the best thing to do would it it's kind of like the old like Demi gets a, wants to get a rise out of you and if you don't she does. I did laugh, generally laugh, when Courtney comes in and says, who thinks I'm the cancer of the house? And Demi just, like, raises her hand. <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> it yeah. was a lot. That was, um, yeah, this episode really exhausted me. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was a lot. I'm emotionally raw. Yeah. 
But I think that, I don't know, we definitely worked through our cultural Marxism. Did um, you, I, I was kind of struggling to identify phrases, like things you hear in seminar. Oh, I have some. Things you hear on the show. I was, I was admittedly weak. I was on my Instagram a little bit when I was watching it. So. You're being a capitalist monster. I was. I was. Oh, so, can we just back up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was Kerpa? Oh, I don't know. She's getting a free <laughs> ride to Singapore, though. Kerpa has, like, she got a package, I think. I don't remember. Like, in the beginning, introducing her. I'm not She's sure. really, I know nothing about her. She's pretty. She is pretty. She got a rose. Who is Kerpa? Don't know. Also, apparently, um, I got this from my other podcast that I listened to about The Bachelor because I guess I don't do my, like, course readings. I just do this. <laughs> um, but Cassie was on a show about, like, Christian teens in school, like, rebelling or something. Which one's Cassie? Cassie's a speech pathologist. Oh, who oh. I don't think you've written in Cassie to discuss. Cassie, we're waiting. The ethics of, um, um apparently she was on reality TV, too. So. It's not surprising. Yeah. She... I mean, re- being a reality star is a career now. Definitely. Because you don't go on a reality show to do X. You go on to go on the million spinoffs. You go on to mm-hmm. get an Instagram career. True. You go on to hosting. Jesse Palmer is host hosted that horrible show about people getting engaged. Okay. You want to hear my, yeah. my phrases? What do okay. You have? This is things you hear on The Bachelor and Graduate <laughs> Seminar. Ready? Yeah. Where is Singapore? <laughs> True. I woke up this morning feeling emotionally exhausted. Oh, wow. That's, that's a, what Hannah said. That's a big one. Okay, yeah. I have another one. He's never left North America before. Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's like throwing some shade. Yeah. I mean, I haven't. Oh, no, I've been. I mean, I haven't. I've been to the Bahamas. That's. Well, I mean, in, in Bachelor Nation, that's that's good. You're good. Yeah. So. It's not something I'm proud of. It's just something that is. That is. Yeah. Those are good. Thanks. I really like that. Um, We got a late reader mail. Oh, my gosh. From um, a new listener. (gasps) Who is? Michael. Oh, hi, Michael. Um, Michael um, would like, he's asking in this email, um, is Bachelor Nation a cult? Discuss. Does he mean, like, what does he mean? I need a definition of Um, cult. He, I don't know. That's all he wrote. No. Okay. Um, Michael, if you're listening, that's our answer. Well, what do you think? What else did we talk? Like, I don't even remember our, like, previous course readings, like I am in my normal seminars. Yeah. But we're we're talking about Bachelor Nation as some type of, um, oh, structure or whatever. Bachelor Nation, I think, is a structure to watching television, maybe. That, like, within Chris Harrison as our host, within, like... ABC families or corporation like Bachelor Nation like structures us into like these certain viewing patterns. So I don't think it's a cult in a religious, historical religious sense of the word, but I think that Bachelor Nation is like the grammar that allows us to make sense of these interrelationships. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to have that obnoxious answer be like, it depends what you, your definition of cult. Mm. Do you mean a cult like um, the Manson family? <laughs> a cult, you know what I mean? No, yeah. because. Not just because Bachelor is mainstream, like Bachelor is so saturated in everything, and usually mm. a cult means that it removes you from mm, everything, nice. everything in society. Um, but then you could talk of like the cult of personality, maybe. Well, I think a maybe like a cult in the sense like this is kind of Marxist that like Bachelor Nation, like this ethos of like doing viewing parties and like watching with your girls and like drinking wines, like this like provides i don't know some sort of social script that distracts us from the realities of our like exploited labor and the fact that rape culture exists etc and so Mm -hmm. like bachelor nation um is a sense of it feeds into a sense of false consciousness yeah and then you talk about cult like cult movies which are like movies that are not in the mainstream that have then gained a following so that's definitely it's like the opposite yeah of cult you know what though if you were on the show i think it's kind of like joining a cult because then you get sort of sucked into this alternate reality where you are i mean they love when they date each other when they get married and it's this cult where 
you kind of do separate from other people because you have this thing in common. You start only hanging out with bachelor people, yeah, and there's which like, some of them do. Yeah. Um, and your reality is told that you're special, that you nobody understands what you went through. Mm-hmm. And to rise to like, I guess you have to go, like if it's Scientology, you have to audit until you're like a Jade and Tanner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- or you're a, like, well, who is, who's the L. Ron Hubbard of the Bachelor Nation? Who's, who's- I mean, Chris Harrison. Oh. <laughs> not really. But um, yeah. I mean, you want not only is finding love kind of the ultimate achievement, but it's on there, right? Because it'll be acknowledged. It'll yeah. It'll be televised. You'll get coverage. You'll be seen as like the paragon of how the experiment actually does work, even though mm-hmm. the odds are terrible. And even and like and then within that space, there's like a specific set of like rules, expectations, language, like myths and symbols that like go along with like your participation like as part of not part of bachelor nation but part of the show that like the rose becomes like this insular symbol like that you could say like the masses don't understand the significance of that type of of object so interesting question michael thank you for writing in yeah oh some goss hot goss um chris harrison is dating an entertainment weekly reporter he is yeah. She's great. I've heard her on podcasts before. I really like her. Um, Caitlin went on a date with Jason. Jay- yeah. Oh, you know this already. I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know. I listen so, to my, my pod. My okay. Pod. So that's it. So there you go. Like there's yeah. there's just that. Um, mm-hmm. I heard Rachel Lindsay on a podcast recently and she's still going ahead with that marriage. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> her choice. Um, are Garrett and Becca still together? I hope not. I mean, I think I want to throw that whole relationship in the trash. Yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. Who is your pick for next Bachelorette? Oh, uh, I'm honestly, I feel like I don't know. I feel like Kaylin, if she doesn't get picked, like yeah, they're creating like they're creating a narrative for her, like or potentially cassie i feel like people love her her like energy she cried wearing like an approachable sweater this episode so we're on spotify and itunes we're real now yeah so you can um i mean i'll put up a link but you could just search so the main website you probably want to go to is our tumblr because i post we post kind of note show notes and you links post. there yeah <laughs> I, I mean you're the beauty on the brain i am um like the yeah. third author <laughs> yeah yeah uh so that's can i steal you for can i steal you for a sec dot tumblr dot com um send us your questions bachelor critical theory at gmail.com yeah. cassie we're waiting who else are we waiting to have contact uh, us I think foucault, foucault. <laughs> marks we it's- wanted to have colton read what what was it i need bell hooks i think before. <laughs> colton if you've read bell hooks please write us yeah write us um but yeah Next week, I think we're going to be talking about post-colonial theory. Oh, my God. Are you so excited? I'm going to lose my mind. It's my favorite body of thought. Yes. So, yeah. But tune in. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.